If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you've got to look in your table of contents, that's all right. It's in the Old Testament. The book of Nehemiah. I kind of shared a little bit about this some time ago, but when it came time to decorate our house for Christmas, I really needed a hand. Uh, We have quite a bit of stuff. I was just coming off of my surgery, was not moving too well, and was under doctor's orders and Tara's orders not to be lifting too much. And so we had a lot to do, and I certainly couldn't do anything to help. So I reached out to some guys via a text and said, hey, can anybody come give me a hand? And five guys said yes. And they came over on a Saturday morning, and they absolutely knocked it out getting boxes out of the attic, setting up our Christmas trees, putting lights all the way across the house and around some of our trees. It was amazingly successful. And some of you may have heard me say, I think I'm going to pull my shoulder every November so I can text my buddies for some help. Can you give me a hand? It's a phrase that simply means, can you help? Can you assist me to do a task, and all of us need a hand from time to time, huh? Maybe it's just pulling that heavy bag out of the garbage can. Hey, babe, can you come here? Can you give me a hand? I can't get it. We got too much junk in here. Maybe it's, hey, can you hold the ladder while I screw in this light bulb? Hey, can you, can you open the oven? Can you give me a hand? Because maybe your hands are already full. It literally means I've only got two hands, and could use, really use three right now. So can you give me one of yours? And more broadly, it simply means to help or to assist someone with a task. We all need a hand in life, a lot. And in ministry in particular, we certainly need a hand. We need a hand from each other in the body of Christ. All of us are gifted by the Lord in particular ways, and we're meant to use those spiritual gifts to be a blessing to the body of Christ. But more than that, we don't only need each other's hands, we need God's hand. If we desire to see fruit in our ministries, we need a hand from the Lord. You might say, well, that's, that's cute, Mitch. Hey, can, Lord, can you give us a hand? But the reality is we're going to look at a story this morning of some incredible success. And Nehemiah, like Ezra before him, giving credit to the good hand of the Lord that was upon him. In Nehemiah chapter 2, let's watch the amazing success. You know the story maybe from last week? Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king way out east in Susa, in Persia. And his brothers come to him there in chapter 1, and he asks them, I'm sorry, verse 1, Now it happened in the month Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity at about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. 
and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So Nehemiah hears of what's going on there in Jerusalem and it breaks his heart. In verse 4 and following, we see his response. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven and I said, and there's his prayer. We learned last week that he prayed this every day, night and day, for four months. And at the end of his prayer that he records for us in chapter 1, there in verse 11, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. This man is King Artaxerxes of Persia. And after four months of prayer, Nehemiah seemingly has the sense that today's the day. So in chapter 2, it came about in the month Nisan, four months later, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. That's what a cupbearer did, right? As the wine is being served to the king, the cupbearer has the wonderful task of drinking it first to make sure it's not poisoned. And then seeing that it's okay to go ahead and pass it along to the king. The wine was before him. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. The implication is, and we're about to see it very clearly, he was sad today. All of the grief that he had been feeling for these four long months was showing on his face today. That can get you killed before the king of Persia. If you're just one of the employees, if you will, you're supposed to have a happy face in front of the king all the time. Because the king is great, right? And everything's great for the king. And so you're supposed to just keep it up, happy face all the time to show the king that he's the man. By having a sad face, you may be communicating that all is not well in his kingdom and with his kingship. And that can get you killed. That's why in verse 2, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. But I want us to note that a frowning face does not get removed as it could, but simply questioned. Nehemiah's sad face could have gotten him killed. And thus he was very much afraid, but the king didn't remove Nehemiah's head. He simply asked him, what's up? The king said to me, why is your face sad? Though you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. This is success, if you will. This is a door that is opening with King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah's been praying for four months. 
that he would have success before this man. And here he is with a sad face that could get him killed. And rather than chop his head off, King Artaxerxes says, hey, what's going on today? The door is opening. Next, though, an expression of pain doesn't get blown off, but compassionately received. I said to the king, verse 3, let the king live forever. Meaning, king, the sadness on my face has nothing to do with you or your rule. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed with fire. Nehemiah's got a sad face and the king asks, what's up? And Nehemiah expresses to him the grief that's in his heart, the pain that he's experiencing over his city. Now, that could have gone in one ear and out the other of King Artaxerxes. I mean, what does he care about a small, insignificant city way off across the way in Judea? One of the faraway cities of one of his subjected peoples. He's got bigger fish to fry. And when Nehemiah poured out his heart about his city, which lies desolate and its gates that have been consumed by fire, the king of the Persian Empire could have simply just blown him off and said, Nehemiah, as my wife says to the girls every once in a while, fix your face. It's one of our favorite lines around the house. At least one of the daughters has been taken into the pantry in the kitchen, the door closed behind them both, and told to fix your face. King Artaxerxes could have said to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, I could care less about your city. Fix your face and get back to work. But he didn't. The king didn't brush him off, but compassionately received it. Verse 4, the king said to me, what would you request? Folks, this is a door that's opening more and more. This is amazing grace. Not only could he have his head chopped off for being sad in the king's presence, but when he poured out his heart, he could have been told, Nehemiah, get back to work. And then you got to love it. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said. Chapter 1, we get a, a picture of Nehemiah praying day, day, and night for four months. Persistent, prevailing prayer. And here in chapter 2, we get one of these, oh, God, help me. One guy said it's the most beautiful example of a spontaneous prayer in the Scripture. Derek Kidner is a famous Old Testament commentator. He said, the remembered scene lives for us in this intimate, rapid narrative. We are involved in it, holding our breath with Nehemiah as he gasps a prayer and braces himself to reply. 
Third, a bold ask doesn't get scoffed at, but generously supplied. The king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Maybe maybe it was a, God, thank you, and help me. And then he prayed. And then he said, I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. That's a pretty bold ask. Nehemiah is asking if he can have a different job, be relieved from his current position as the cupbearer to the king, and be gone. And that could have been enough to give the king pause, but Nehemiah goes on and on. He asks him first, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So the king's thinking here, yeah, hmm. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? If I let you do this, how long are you going to be gone? And, and we're not told here. It just says, so it pleased the king to send me. I, there it is. I gave him a definite time. How long will your journey be? When will you return? And so Nehemiah gave him his best answer. I think, I think I'll be gone for this long. And I think I'll return at this time. And it pleased the king to send him. The king could have said, no, I don't want to lose you. And if you remember from last week, remember what we said? We learn it from Ezra chapter 4. There had already been an attempt to rebuild the city. And the enemies of God's people there in Jerusalem and the surrounding area wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes and said, these folks are trying to rebuild the city. They're going to rebel against you. Artaxerxes read their letter and said, okay, and issued a decree to put a stop to the work on the city. And so here's Nehemiah asking, can I go back and rebuild the city? He's not just asking for permission. He's asking for the king of Persia to reverse a decree that he had just made a handful of years earlier. And the king's doing it. And Nehemiah goes on. Verse 7, I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. So, hey, uh, king, while you're at it, can you, can you write me some permission slips that will get me through on my way? Letters from the king of Persia? And, verse 8, and can I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me the tim- timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house to which I will go? And the king granted them to me. Not only did the king not scoff at all of these requests, but he said, yes, yes. And then he said yes to one that 
It doesn't look like Nehemiah asked for, but he gave it to him anyway. In verse 9, I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So the king had sent an entourage with him. Members of the Persian military. This is amazing. This is success, success, success. Nehemiah went three for three with King Artaxerxes, right? That'll get you in the Hall of Fame if you're a baseball player. As we keep reading the story, he not only had success with King Artaxerxes, which is amazing, three times over, but he's going to have success with the people as well. We'll just read in verse 10 quickly. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. We're going to run into these guys again at the end of chapter 2, but in particular in chapter 4. So we'll talk more about them at that time, but it is interesting that the author already begins to let us know that this is going to be a hard task. It will be opposed. Verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. So Nehemiah has come from Susa and made the journey all the way to Jerusalem. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on the, onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Nehemiah came to town and spent some time inspecting the problem before going to the people. He wanted to see what he was up against and prepare for the vision that he would cast to the people. In verse 17, then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah is calling upon the people. to join him in something that will cost them dearly, cost them their time, their talents, and their treasure. To rebuild the city, to rebuild the wall, would take all that they had, and it would be opposed, and it would be difficult. And you know what? 
the remnant of the people could have just rolled their eyes at him. Who is this outsider coming in here telling us what to do? We've been living here for decades. He just showed up a few days ago. He doesn't know what we've been up against all of these years. He really doesn't know the size of the problem. Who is he anyway? And yet, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. How awesome is that? That's just as magnificent as Artaxerxes three times over saying yes, yes, and yes. Success. The people said, we're in. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. So we've seen some incredible success, and of course the question is, what was the source of it? And it will obviously be God. Ultimately, this book is not about the leadership savvy of Nehemiah, though he is an absolutely incredible leader. And how tempting it is for a preacher like me to say, what did Nehemiah do? Let's do that. And do a study on leadership capability and leadership characteristics. And it would be a fruitful study, no question about that. But I wonder if the story itself is more about God than it is about Nehemiah. Nehemiah had some wonderful success, if you will, but where did it come from? It came from the God of heaven who put his good hand upon Nehemiah and whose presence inspired the people to action. Here's the way I'm seeing it. Where did it come from? Number one, it came from the God of heaven who controls the stuff of earth. We already saw in chapter 1, verse 4, when Nehemiah began to pray. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven. And here in chapter 2, when the king in verse 4 said, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He is the God who is infinitely above us, sovereign Lord over us. And one said, infinitely excelling all the principalities and powers both of the upper and of the lower world, the angels and the kings. 
It speaks of his absolute sovereignty and his majesty and his supreme reign over all things. How did Jesus teach us to pray? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven. He is our heavenly Father. Praise God for the truth and the reality of adoption. That we who were strangers and aliens to God because of our sin, enemies to God because of our sin, Through his son, Jesus Christ, he has forgiven us and reconciled us to himself and adopted us into his family. We are his children and he is our father. He loves us. There's an intimacy to that. There's a wonder to that. He's our father who art in heaven. He reigns supreme. He's magnificent and glorious and powerful and sovereign over the stuff of earth. We pray to a God of heaven asking him to work down here in the affairs of men. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So brothers and sisters, I don't know what is heavy upon your heart, the circumstances that you are going through. But your God and mine, your heavenly Father and mine, is just that he's our heavenly Father. He lives and reigns from heaven above. And there's nothing that can keep him from accomplishing his good purposes in your life and mine. He's a way maker. He's a miracle worker. He can take the heart of the most powerful man in the world and just turn it wherever he wishes. He can do it in your strained relationships. He can do it in the sin that so easily entangles you. He can do it in what you're dealing with in the workplace. He can do it. He's the God of heaven. Not just the God of heaven who controls the stuff of earth, but the good hand of God that ensures success when God is pleased. We skipped over it, but there it is in verse 8 at the end. After Artaxerxes had said, yes, yes, and the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. This was the decisive factor. Nehemiah did not say, and the king granted them to me Because of my incredible leadership abilities. No. Nehemiah says, not to us, not to us, but but to thy name be the glory. He realized that the good fortune 
that he was experiencing was coming from the hand of God. Now, if you will, keep your finger there, but you don't necessarily need to. Just go back a couple pages to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible are actually one book. Whenever the, I believe it was when the Septuagint was written, Ezra and Nehemiah were separated into these two books that we call Ezra and Nehemiah. But this particular phrase, the good hand of the Lord, the good hand of the Lord, the good hand of the Lord, we find it in Ezra and in Nehemiah. In Ezra chapter 7, this 7 through 10 is the story. Ezra 1 to 6 was the story of Zerubbabel and 50,000 people going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And a little bit later, chapter 7 through 10 is Ezra with about 2,000 people going back to rebuild the people. We can't read it all, but just... To show you in chapter 7, verse 1, after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of, son of, son of, son of, verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. In verse 11 and following, we get a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes had written about the permission that Ezra had to return, the provision that he was to receive And at the end of chapter 7, in verse 27, Ezra said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. I mean, Ezra can't believe it, that King Artaxerxes is not only letting him go back, but King Artaxerxes had also commanded that bunches of stuff be given to the temple in Jerusalem and to help Ezra. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who's put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. He has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And so the permission had been given and provision had been set forth. And now in chapter 8, this is the story of their journey to go back. And so in verse 15, I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava where we camped for three days. And when I observed the people and the priest, 
I didn't find any Levites there. So he sends for them, and they get a bunch to come. And in verse 18, according to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and brothers, 18 men. And so now they've got all the people that he needs, and it's time to go. And in verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. But his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. Then in verse 31, we journeyed from the river Ahava on the 12th of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and returned and remained there three days. The hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. And when we get to Nehemiah chapter 2, and God just opens door after door after door with King Artaxerxes, allowing Nehemiah to go back and providing for Nehemiah and protecting Nehemiah. Nehemiah said, it's because the good hand of my God was upon me. To me, that little phrase in Ezra and in Nehemiah speaks to permission. Maybe for you and me, when doors open up for us, it's because the good hand of the Lord is upon it and opened up the door. It speaks to protection. We see that over and over again. That the good hand of God was upon us and, and protected us on our journey. How many times have we been protected? We don't even know it. Because the good hand of our God was upon us. It speaks of provision. How many, God, how many times has God provided for us just what we need, and if not, more? And it's because the good hand of our God was upon us. I think it might even speak to perseverance. God's people just continued faithfully because his good hand was upon them. Finally, I think maybe not only is, is credit going to the God of heaven and to the good hand of God which was upon him, but maybe even the rumor of Aslan being on the move, if you know the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What was it that inspired the people when they heard Nehemiah cast this vision and call them to this costly work? What was it that inspired them to say yes? I told them, verse 18, how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Hey guys, let me tell you why I'm here. 
I've been, I've been praying for four months. And you all know Artaxerxes had already shut this thing down. And yet I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And then guess what, guys? I was in front of him one day, sadness on my face, and that could get me killed. But he didn't kill me. He said, what's up? And so I told him what, what was going on here in Jerusalem. And he could have just blown me off and said, Nehemiah, get back to work. But he didn't. He said, what do you need? And so I, I told him that I would like to leave my current job and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And he's just already decreed that that can't happen. And guys, he said, sure. Aslan's on the move, y'all. God just took the heart of the king and just moved it to say, yes, yes. He even gave me a military entourage. I didn't even ask for that. They heard it, and they said, God must be in this. Let us arise and build. And I wonder if also the thought that God was on the move isn't what led to Nehemiah's spirited response to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. Mocking, despising, what is this thing you're doing? You're rebelling against the king. So I answered them and said, the God of heaven will give us success. I mean, just return fire with fire. Straightforward. God is with us. God is going to give us success. So, you and I, we need the good hand from heaven upon us, don't we? In the ministry that you are involved in, in the ministry that we are involved in as the body of Christ at Redeemer, we desperately need God's hand resting upon us to open doors, to provide needs, to protect from the enemy, to help us persevere in the work. We desperately need his hand upon us. And so I ask the question, well, how do you secure the good hand of God upon you? And the best that I can come up with is stated by Ezra in chapter 8, verse 22, and then modeled by both Ezra and Nehemiah. Here it is again, Ezra 8, 22 the hand of God is favorably disposed to all those who seek Him. How do you secure the good hand of God upon you? How do we secure the good hand of God upon us? Ezra says, the hand of God is favorably disposed to all those who seek Him. Prayer. And Nehemiah will model, or Ezra will model, and Nehemiah will model fasting and prayer. I said last week, and I'll say it again, we will talk about fasting coming up, especially as Awaken West Houston comes upon us in the month of March, where 
I will be asking all of you, will you fast as God leads you and pray for 17 households by name throughout the month of March? Will you take 17 names of households that you don't even know and for 30 days will you fast as God leads you and pray for them by name? And I'm hoping every single one of us will say, yeah, give me 17. But as that approaches, especially in February, as March is approaching, we'll talk more about fasting. To those who seek him, not only does Ezra say it, but he models it. Back there again, if you want to glance at it, but I don't think I'm going to. Well, verse 21, 821, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him, seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. Matthew Henry. The solemn application Ezra made to God in that confidence, he proclaimed fast. No doubt he had himself begged of God direction in this affair. From the first time he had it in his thoughts. But for public mercies, public prayers must be made that all who are to share in the comfort of them may join in the request for them. Their fasting was, one, to express their humiliation. This he declares to be the intent and meaning of it. He goes on to say, the intent also was to excite their supplications. Prayer was always joined with religious fasting. Their errand to the throne of grace was to seek of God the right way, that is, to commit themselves to the guidance of the divine providence, to put themselves under the divine protection, to beg of God to guide and keep them in their journey and bring them safely to their journey's end. They were strangers in the road, were to march through their enemies' countries, and had not a pillar of cloud and fire to lead them as their fathers had. But they believed that the power and favor of God and the ministration of his angels would be to them instead of that and hoped by prayer to obtain divine assistance. And then Matthew Henry notes, says, Note, all our concerns about ourselves, our families, our states, it is our wisdom and duty by prayer to commit to God and leave the care of with him. How do you secure the hand of God? How do we secure the hand of God? By seeking him through prayer, asking for him to do for us what he must do What about Nehemiah? Well, the prayer life of Nehemiah is legendary. Of course, we saw his four months of prayer in chapter 1. There we saw in chapter 2, verse 4, 
So I prayed to the God of heaven. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their approach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Chapter 4, verse 9, But we prayed to our God. Because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Chapter 5, verse 19, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. Chapter 6, verse 9, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. 6.14, remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works of theirs and also Nodiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. 13.14, remember me for this, O oh my God. Do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. And then he closes the entire book in chapter 13. Remember me, O oh my God, for good prayer. Seeking God, pleading with God for his good hand upon us. Not to Nehemiah, but to God be the glory. God was at work. The good hand of his God was upon him. And it opened up doors We're amazing. Would you join us in prayer? If you haven't already, take one of those 31-day prayer guides. You can find it on a chair. And join us each and every day and pray and seek God's blessing and his good hand upon Redeemer. And join us tonight from 5 to 6 o'clock. Just like Mike said, if if you're not one of those who's up for praying out loud, you don't have to pray out loud. We break up into small groups. We do some different things. But all the while, you can just be quietly praying in your heart and agreeing with others who are praying. But join with us and bring your kids. We'll take care of them. Your fourth and fifth graders, your students will be in here with us and pray. And let's seek God together for his good hand upon us that he would guide us and lead us and strengthen us and empower us and help us. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, would you give us a hand? If you don't, it is all in vain. But if you will reach down and put your good hand upon us, nothing can stop what your purposes are. You can open doors, you can provide. You can protect. You can help us persevere. You can do 10,000 other good things in our midst. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Um, All of them got stuff going on. 
challenges in their lives, pain maybe in their lives. They could use a hand, the good hand of the Lord to be upon them, to make a way to work a miracle. Might you provide it for them? Lord, we see the hand of God was upon Ezra and Nehemiah apparently because they sought you. They prayed to you. May it be so of us. Make us a prayerful people. Like Nehemiah who would day and night for four months who even in a moment would look to heaven and pray to the Lord God. Help us to realize our need and look to you for your strength. And Father, if there's any here today who do not know you as their heavenly Father, they do not know if their sins have been forgiven. They don't know if they've been reconciled to God. They don't know if they have the right to call you Father. Would you help them to see the absolute glory of the gospel, the good news that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live a holy life for them, to die upon a cross, to pay the penalty for their sins, to rise from the dead in victory for them, that you are alive Your son is alive and he is open arms to any who will humbly come to him. He will forgive their sins. He will become the new leader of their life. And they'll never be the same. Would you do your work now? Any who've never trusted in Jesus, that they would put their hope and trust in Jesus today. And we will pray this in the wonderful, in the glorious, and the loving name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.